1: Welcome to Classical Ideas, this is Greg Soden. Today, interfaith and interreligious relationships and households are on the rise in the United States. The public perception of interreligious marriage has greatly shifted over time, from the 1950s and 60s when the practice was actually quite taboo, to today when such relationships are rising dramatically. American popular entertainment and culture from Little House on the Prairie, The Heartbreak Kid, Annie Hall, Bridget Loves Bernie, Sex and the City, and The O.C. has depicted a range of interfaith and interreligious relationships. Books have been written on how to have an interfaith Jewish and Christian celebration known as Chrismica, and religious life has begun to intertwine families and generations across religious lines. Combining faiths within households and the multicultural shifts that occur from those marriages is the topic of today's discussion with my guest, Dr. Samira Mehta. Dr. Samira Mehta is a scholar of religion and the politics of the American family and an assistant professor of women and gender studies and Jewish studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She has a degree in divinity from Harvard University and a PhD from Emory University. The topic of this conversation is her book, Beyond Chrismica, Christian-Jewish Interfaith Families in the United States, released from Chapel Hill University of North Carolina Press in 2018. I hope you enjoy this conversation just in time for the 2019 holiday season. So without further delay, please enjoy this chat with Dr. Samira Mehta. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Can you just maybe spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience and tell, us, tell everybody what you do?
2: So I focus on sort of family religious practices and representations and thoughts about the American family from about World War II to the present. I work in... Jewish studies, American religion, and women and gender studies in terms of disciplines. So I'm really interested in thinking about the intersections of those worlds and how they play out in family life. Wonderful. How
1: did the scholarly exploration of religion enter your life? What kind of hooked you into making this a profession?
2: So when I was in college, I had to fill a distribution requirement. I was an English major, and I was at a school that said you had to take three classes in the humanities, three in the social sciences, three in the natural sciences, and you had to cover at least two departments. So I needed to take a class outside of the English department, and I decided to try a patterns of Asian religion class. I'm half Indian. I wanted someone to explain Hinduism to me. Nice. And I just loved the religion department. They were fantastic people. I ended up double majoring, um, mostly out of love of them. And then when I was applying to PhD programs in English, I realized that it would make me really sad to stop studying religion. And at the time, anyway, and I have not kept up with what's going on in the world of... English literature. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of room to do religion and literature, at least through English programs. And so I ended up deciding to study religion instead. I did this experiment on myself. I took an extra year off between college and graduate school. And at the, as I was like, oh, my God, I can't go to graduate school in English. <laughs> I want to study religion. What am I going to do? <laughs> So I went to the Harvard bookstore, which is this amazing independent bookstore in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I bought a bunch of 19th century British novels, a bunch of literary theory, a bunch of American religious history, and a bunch of early Christianity. Those were the four things that I really loved and decided that when it was time to make a decision about graduate school, I'd see what I had read. And I had read all of the 19th century British novels and all of the American religious history but none of the literary theory Mm -hmm. and none of the early Christianity. And I was sort of like, well, I think that's an answer. I think the scholarly work that I'm interested in is American religious history. And then from there, I came to get very involved in the study of American Judaism.
1: Very cool. That is such a neat little experiment you ran on yourself. I love that. Um, So...
2: (laughs) extremely dorky 23 year old yeah
1: no but it's actually really cool and um, you know I see a lot of that in myself looking back at that age as well where I wanted to explore new things new ideas new cultures and I wound up doing a lot of traveling but um, you know I feel like that is such a transformative moment so you have this new book out called Beyond Chrismica and they're, they're, the theme in the book is about interfaith families, and interfaith is like a growing trend on this show in particular. Like, I've done episodes specifically on interfaith activism, and I've talked to people who have interfaith backgrounds, and it Ooh. seems that it's super common in this country, and only getting more and more common. So how did you latch on to the prevalence of interfaith as a possible area of academic pursuit?
2: So I really didn't, is in some ways, my answer. Um, I was looking for a topic and this book was originally my dissertation. And so this, it's a very long germination project. And so when I came up with this topic, interfaith wasn't holding the space that it's holding right now. Yeah. So I went to graduate school wanting to work on the Puritans. I think my advisor just trusted that I would outgrow that. Mm. Um, I got to Emory and I discovered that I didn't love the Puritans. I had loved the professor who taught the Puritans. Right. my master's program, who is brilliant and funny and snarky and grandfatherly. Like he just, he was, he was, he was a wonderful professor for me. Um, but without him, I wasn't as interested in the Puritans anymore. Um, but what I was, and so I had this professor at Emory named Diane Stewart, and she said, well, what about them excited you? And we talked and talked and we realized that what I was interested in was this phenomenon that happens both in Puritan New England and with interfaith families. What happens when the religious rules of an institution do not match what the believers need and want, right? So you want things, you, you, you like, the rules just don't fit with you and who you are and what you want, but you're not willing to walk out on the religion, Because there are still things that really matter to you. Mm -hmm. So I've got a really good friend who wants to be a priest, but she also wants to be a daily communicant. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to find that in the Episcopal Church. And so like, she's like, do I walk on Catholicism so that I can be a priest? Or do I stay a Catholic because I want this ritual practice, right? I suspect she could find it in the Episcopal Church, but it would be harder, right? Mm -hmm. And so... um. And so, like, what do you do with that? How do people navigate that tension between the rules of their institutions and the cultures and conventions of their institutions and the fact that their own lives, needs, wants, beliefs, spiritual journeys, ethics, whatever, don't fit, but there is still something that they're really looking for from that institution, a worldview, a sense of wonder, a sense of history, a sense of community, all sorts of things. And so I was trying to figure out another way to study that kind of tension. And I went out to lunch with my friend who was a student priest at the big Episcopal church near where we went to graduate school. And he had just had a student come to him for sort of private confirmation tutoring because the student's family wasn't super involved in the church and didn't have a ton of background, and he hadn't, like, done the Sunday school that he needed to get confirmed. But they wanted him to get confirmed. And the kid revealed that he had had a bar mitzvah. Mm. And so my friend is out to lunch with me and where I'm looking for a topic, and he is looking for anything that he can read that will explain to him what on earth is going on in the life of this family because he's trying to figure out how to respond to them. And he's not necessarily, and he's worried about all sorts of things, right? Like, the rabbi who did the bar mitzvah is someone that he and his, and the priest who is his supervisor, have lunch with at, like, Atlanta clergy lunch once a month or whatever. And he's trying to figure out, like, how to navigate that, but also, like, what are the actual needs of the family? And what he finds is that everything that has been written about interfaith families is either a how-to manual... Or, in which case it's prescriptive, right? Right, it, right. It's saying like, here is how to pick one religion and it should be X. Right. Or how to do both. Um, although very few of those in 2005 when we're having this, con- 2006 when we're having this conversation. Um, or it's a um, piece of sociological work, usually out of Jewish studies and usually privileging sort of often pathologizing interfaith families, like what's wrong with these people suggesting that the Jew, the Jewish partner doesn't really have a strong Jewish identity. Maybe they're a self-hating anti-Semite and it's none of it's overtly saying any of this, but that's all part of the like subtext to what's going on.
1: Interesting. Okay. So, now that you've done all this work, how do you, like, define interfaith marriage? Like, is there, are there specific things that, um, is there a specific way we can define this in 2019, this, this trend, this phenomenon in society?
2: Well, so the way that it is de- defined, I think this is the definition that the Pew, um, like religion and public life folks use, but it's certainly the um, definition that gets used in Putnam and Campbell's American grace Mm -hmm. is they basically say an interfaith marriage is a marriage between um, anyone in a given collection of groups. So, and the groups are um, mainline Protestants, evangelical Protestants, Catholics, possibly orthodox um yeah i think orthodox christianity judaism islam hinduism buddhism i'm probably missing somebody um and um and like you know that's not a bad understanding for the united states right you could make an argument um that you know, if you're going to say mainline Protestantism and evangelical Protestantism is interfaith, or if you're going to say, like, if you are UCC, and you are marrying somebody who is a sort of not particularly um, devout Catholic, right? Like, you're sort of both lightly Christian, but you're not, Right. In that case, if that's an interfaith marriage, shouldn't a Reform Jew and an Orthodox Jew be an interfaith marriage?
1: That is super interesting.
2: Shouldn't, like, I have a friend who is Sunni. Right. And, like, met this guy, and the guy was awesome, and she really, like, was excited to marry, to date the guy. Like, not to marry him. To, like go out on a date with him. But he was Ismailian. He wouldn't like they could be friends, but they couldn't date because he was Ismailian. She's now married to a reformed Jew. So, you know, there are other. So the thing about the definitions that get used in the United States is that we nuance Christianity a lot more. So we're like, All right, not we're not counting people within the main line. So if, uh, let's leave the Methodists out of this because who knows where the Methodists are going to be in three months. But like if a member of the Presbyterian Church USA marries a member of the United Church of Christ, we're not calling that an interfaith marriage. But a a member of the Presbyterian Church USA marries a member of the Presbyterian Church of America that's an interfaith marriage because one person is mainline and the other is evangelical. Like, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. but And you need to say that my cousin's marriage and our family is Arya Samaj. My, my dad's side of the family is largely Aria Samaj. She married somebody who is definitely not Aria Samaj. Um, this is why this is proof that I'm not a Hinduism scholar. I can't remember what her husband is. <laughs> but like it's a huge it's a similarly huge gap in sure. the world of Hinduism. Now, I imagine if you're studying religion in contemporary India, you'd have a way of capturing that. But in the United States, all of those people are Hindu. But like the space gap is every single bit as big as between a like liberal lefty Birkenstock wearing Quaker and a Southern Baptist with,
1: like, nylons on even in August, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, and the book cause I was reading this book, and I was blown away because I thought about my own grandparents who went to different churches for my entire life, and, like, lightning bolts were going off, like, thinking uh-huh. thinking about my own life and how many people I had known whose families had gone to two different churches forever, but you just never think about it like that. So... I'm curious about the research process. So beyond Chris McGa, the Christian Jewish interfaith family in the United States from the university of North Carolina press. Um, tell me about the research that you did, because there are these fantastic and phenomenal and wide ranging anecdotes in this book that are so many studies wrapped up into one. Tell me about this and tell me about this huge process you went through.
2: So it took years yeah. <coughs> um, and a lot of archives. I spent, a lot of time in Cincinnati at the American Jewish Archives. A, a full month there. I spent time at, um, oh my god, in D.C., big basilica, really, really, really tiny, dingy reading room. Is it just Catholic University?
1: Yeah, Catholic University, and there's also the American Cathedral.
2: Uh, Catholic University. So in the Catholic University archives, I spent time in the Notre Dame archives. Um, I decided I was like trying to figure out how to like treat Protestantism. So I ended up reading every single thing that the um, Christian century published about interfaith marriage ever in its entire history. Um, Because Christian century is sort of the... um, it's not sort of. It is the magazine, the sort of shared magazine of the Protestant mainline. And I thought about the amount of time that I put into Catholic um, archives and Jewish archives. And I imagined trying to scale that to all of the Protestant denominations and decided to use the Christian century. Um, <clears throat> so I um, so I did that. I wanted institutional takes on things. I never did. I didn't end up including this in the book, but I have. I imagine that someday I could potentially write an article thinking about Catholic Protestant interfaith marriage before Vatican II.
1: Mm, yes, that would be interesting.
2: So, and the reason I didn't end up writing about it is that I basically started my book project in about 1965. So I end up starting my project right after Vatican II. But Vatican II turns out to radically change the dynamic around Catholic-Protestant marriage because it decreases some of the lived practice differences between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but in, like, the 1930s and 40s, there's a lot of anxiety about Catholic-Protestant marriage. Um that I never ended up writing about, but I've got all of these stories. It's like people being like, "Oh my God, if he's Protestant and she doesn't want to cook meat on Friday, will he <laughs> let her cook fish on Friday? Will he demean her if she doesn't? Like, will he will he insist on a pot roast and will he like insist that the kids eat the pot roast? And oh my God, or if she's Protestant and he's Catholic, will she? Will he just come home and there's like <laughs> roast chicken on the table, right?" <laughs> <laughs> what going happen um and so so like all of and all of that is at Notre Dame um and it's really great and even though it didn't end up in the book those debates really helped me think about some of what is going on or what some of what could be going on um and honestly a lot of those are not things that are going on in the early like I end up writing about So I write institutionally about Catholics, Protestants, and Jews, and then I write about popular culture. And what you see is that the Catholic-Protestant distinction just drops out of the debate. It becomes Christians and Jews, and it doesn't even matter what kind of Christian you're dealing with. And this is super interesting, because in American religious history, Catholics and Jews are sort of the outsider... The big important outsider traditions, in sort of, I'm not saying this is the best way to do American religious history, but sort of functionally, the way that we do American religious history is to present them as like the, you know, you've got like this 1950s tri faith America model, and we kind of backform that. And so they're the important minority voices in the American story.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so you mentioned an important date, 65, 66. I want to talk about that. There's something that happens in 1966 called the General Commission on Chaplains and Armed Forces Personnel, and they write about the official, quote unquote, official stances of a fi- of interfaith marriage. So in the early days, there is like no like active process by Jewish and Christian religious leaders to like discourage interfaith marriage and later on then they like reluctantly seem to accept it if there's nothing they can do to stop it. So, I I was found I found myself captivated by the use of language that you use in the book. And you you say things like minimize the damage and battle and threat. So, I want you to tell listeners about how to understand the context of this rapid rise of interfaith in the 60s through the 80s while keeping in mind like those violent sounding keywords.
2: So the first thing that I would say is that I had no idea that there were violent sounding keywords until I read the question that you wrote for me. Nice. Like I had no idea. I was just sort of, and I think, so I think that part of it is actually that that chapter, I structure it right around this military document. Yeah. And so I wonder whether it's a little bit just that the military is into military sounding metaphors. Sure. That's a possibility. Um, I will say that Protestants less so. Protestants are really worried about threats to marriage, but they're not worried about threats to Protestantism. The Protestant mainline has not yet figured out that it's going to be demographically absolutely screwed in 50 years. Mm-hmm. They don't see that one coming yet. Jews however are super worried about continuity and threats to their survival of Judaism and and that makes a lot of sense right this is the 1960s there isn't an adult Jew alive who doesn't probably actively remember genocide mm. right like and stories of genocide these are not people who were raised to know about the Holocaust they're like there are young adult Jews who, like, grew up with the awareness of the Holocaust, right? Like, because they were babies. But any adult decision-making kind of Jew is, um, like, was an adult for, or a, a teenager at least, for the Holocaust, So Jews are very aware Jewish life fundamentally is altered forever by the Holocaust, right? European Jewish communities are are decimated. Six million Jews die. Um, The psychological damage borne by the community is huge. Um, And people are really worried that interfaith marriage poses as big a threat to the to Jewish continuity, as did the Holocaust. In fact, um, as you see in later chapters, when I talk about the response to, for instance, the television show Bridget Loves Bernie, Mm -hmm. I did not realize that there were all of these battle metaphors going on, or that I was using (laughs) them. But I certainly was aware of the Holocaust metaphors, right? People talk about this television show Bridget Loves Bernie, which is a sitcom about the hijinks of an interfaith Catholic Jewish couple and people write into the new york times saying it's as if cbs made a sitcom about the merry adventures of a family on their way to the gas chambers that is not quite a direct quote because i didn't write it down to look at for my notes but it is a pretty close paraphrase it's a letter to the editor of a letter to the new york times um people are really concerned and people say things like it would be ironic if American acceptance of Jews finished Hitler's work for him. Hmm. So people are really worried that interfaith marriage is going to be the end of American Judaism and therefore the end of Judaism. The Catholic Church I think is is in this moment of really heightened change and is also feeling fairly besieged by youth culture, right? Like, this is also the 1960s. People are walking out on institutional Christianity, both Protestant and Catholic, and on institutional Judaism. And so they're feeling those those threats and numerical hits as well. So
1: now can we talk a little bit about Vatican II? Why does Vatican II matter in the history of interfaith marriage?
2: So I think that part of the reason that for the second half of the interfaith, the of the century interfaith families end up being, it ends up being a Christian Jewish story instead of a Protestant Catholic story or a Protestant Catholic Jewish story, but really like a Christian Jewish story. I mean, it's partly that many of the people that I'm talking about are really kind of post-institutional in a lot of ways. They're religious seekers and sort of the, um, Maybe they grew up in a church or a synagogue, and it's the 1960s, and they tuned in and they dropped out, or at the very least they walked out. They're upset about sexism. They're upset about social complicity around Vietnam, around race, whatever it is. They're just like not as into it, right? Like it's no longer socially necessary to go. All sorts of things happen, and so, so partly Protestant and Catholic stop mattering quite as much because you're talking about Christmas trees, you're not talking about what you're doing on Sunday morning. But partly Vatican II does... Earlier, I was talking about like all of this anxiety about like, oh my God, what if she won't <laughs> cook fish on Friday? What if he makes her cook meat on Friday? Those tensions go away, right? Vatican II reduces a lot of the difference between Protestants and Catholics in terms of how it is that they're living in the world.
0: Oh. But
2: necessarily in terms of liturgy or embodiment i don't i think there are still really distinctive cultural things about catholic and protestant life i don't mean to say that there aren't but a lot of the sort of institutional anxiety goes away um and i think that that's very important i also think that less Vatican II and more in nineteen seventy, the Vatican releases a statement called Matrimonia Mixa. Mixta? I don't speak Latin. Mm-hmm. I mean, please don't tell my junior high school Latin teacher <laughs> don't speak Latin. But and I also just like so I don't know the word and I can't remember. Matrimonia Mixta, I think, or mixa. Um and it's night so it's nineteen seventy. And basically, it is the Catholic Church saying, we will marry anybody, provided they do X, Y, and Z. Like, we would prefer if you're not, we would prefer that you marry a Catholic. Your marriage is not going to be sacramental in the same way if you do not marry a Catholic. This is the deal, right? But, um, and if you're not going to marry a Catholic, we would prefer that you marry a baptized person, but we actually get that we can't stop you from marrying an unbaptized person. And you can get married and you can get married in a Catholic church by a Catholic priest as long as you promise to raise your kids as Catholics. And so initially, the non-Catholic has to agree to help raise the the kids as Catholics. Um, Now, the non-Catholic just has to agree to not get in the way.
1: Interesting. So, and then in 66, there was a document from Paul the 6th called the apostolic letter motu proprio determining the norms for mixed marriage is that kind of like saying the same stuff that you're talking about right now
2: um so honestly I don't remember um and meant to look it up because you asked me about it ahead of time and didn't um and the reason that I don't remember is that because it's around for four years and then it's sort of superseded by by what I'm talking about from 1970
1: gotcha okay
2: and but it's it's essentially it's the same, it's moving in the same direction. It's sort of outlining like, look, um look, here are the problems with mixed marriage or with interfaith marriage. in order for marriage to be a sacrament, both people need to be in a state of grace when they enter the marriage. If you're Catholic, we've got a procedure
0: mm-hmm.
2: right, and it is. You know, you go to confession, you do your reconciliation, you take you're good to go, right? Protestants don't do this, and so you've got no way of knowing whether or not Protestants are in a state of grace <laughs> and probably think they're not because they like probably have committed sins, right? So so what you've got is you've got this problem in which you can't have a marriage is not a sacrament under those circumstances, right? And so they're concerned about that, and they're outlining those concerns, and the church is pretty clear that they don't want you to do this, but in the end, like, maybe the 1970, like, you could say it's a little bit of a loosening of the rules, it's like, fine, <laughs> but here's the deal.
1: So, and and you said something earlier about the kids, and this is something that I was really interested about, because throughout the book, it seems to me that it's not like the actual people who are getting married to each other that are most important to religious leaders. It seems to be all about the kids. Does this seem to be accurate as well?
2: I think so. It's a little bit hard for me to say whether or not that's like my bias shaping the project. And I, I, And
1: I think the same thing about myself as well.
2: Like, I think pretty strongly and i felt that my research bore this out two people can kind of make anything work as long as they're not trying to like shape the like mental worlds of children mm-hmm. you know you can go to synagogue with me and i can go to church with you when we can explore and experiment and enjoy those things But if we're being told that it's going to be really bad for our kids to do both, and if we're being told that our kids can't be both, which people are being told by religious leaders and sort of by – there's the sort of – this is no longer the case. But, like, certainly in the 1970s and in the 1980s, conventional wisdom is saying you have to pick one religion for the kids. And that's where you start getting problems. And um, because how do you determine it? How do you figure it out? Or you get people who, until they have kids, they're like I said, they're secular Jews, they're lapsed Catholics, they're post Protestant. They're not, they're going home for Christmas, right? And like, I don't know. I at one point had a boyfriend who was like, let's get a Christmas tree. And I was like, we're going to be at my parents' house for two weeks. We cannot get a Christmas tree. It will burn down the house. (laughs) Like, we're not hiring somebody to come over and water the tree every day so the house doesn't burn down, right? And so, like, you can't – so people are going away. You have kids. You're more likely to be in your own house for the holiday. Oh, my God, are we getting a tree? Um, There's a television show, 30-something. It was an Emmy award-winning show in the late 80s. And the husband talks about how before he had a kid, he used to love celebrating Christmas with his wife. He liked all of it. He liked it in their house. He liked it at her parents' house. It was lovely. It was fun. And now that he's got a kid, he sees his grandfather rising up from the grave to have another heart attack at the idea that this little Jewish kid is celebrating christmas now interestingly according to jewish law kids not jewish mom's not jewish mm-hmm. i mean and they're not giving the kid a jewish education so by the standards of conservative and orthodox judaism kid isn't jewish mom's not jewish by the standards of reform judaism i guess kid is too young to have had a jewish education yet but like they don't show any inclination to be giving the kid a jewish education it's <laughs> not jewish but he's like He had loved having a tree, as long as he was a person with a Jewish identity participating in this fun celebration as the Jewish guest. But how do you give your kid a strong Jewish identity if they're growing up with a tree? Are they going to know that they're supposed to feel like a guest who's having fun? Interesting. And I think it happens in the other direction, too. I talked to one person who unfortunately lost a kid, and they had agreed to have the kid be Jewish. Um, And as the child was dying of leukemia, the Christian father, who had not cared that the kid wasn't getting baptized, who didn't think he believed in baptism, all of a sudden, when it became really clear that the kid was going to die, started having nightmares, about the fact that the kid hadn't been baptized and he didn't believe that baptism did anything. And he didn't feel the need to force baptism on his Jewish wife, but like he was responsible for the fact that his kid wasn't baptized. And what if he turned out to be wrong, right? What if his mother, his grandmother, his childhood minister, what if they were all right?
1: Right. It's like Pascal's wager.
2: And he couldn't do it. And his Jewish wife said, absolutely bring in, I don't remember what kind of Christian he was. Bring in a priest, bring in a minister, bring in the hospital chaplain. Let's get this kid baptized. And she, like from her standpoint, whatever, it's not efficacious. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. And she ended up leaving Judaism. She got such flack from her rabbi for having allowed her husband to baptize their child that she walked on religion on Judaism.
1: Oh, it's so intense. Okay. Let's talk about something lighthearted for a second. Um, Let's talk about TV shows and movies. Well, I was going
2: to say Christmas cookies made into dreidels, but okay, TV That's shows. That's
1: spectacular. So, like, my one of my favorite portions of the book is your exploration and the depictions of film and television shows that depict interfaith marriage. And this seemed like you probably had a lot of fun doing research on Little House on the Prairie, Abby's Irish Rose, The Heartbreak Kid, Annie Hall, Bridget Loves Bernie, Sex and the City, and The O.C., which, fun fact, provides the origin story for the title of the book— and the classic The Way We Were. How much fun was this movie and TV show and pop culture research section?
2: So my, like, sort of work husband likes to refer to me as the foremost scholar on The O.C. who's <laughs> never watched The O.C., <laughs> um, which is not true in that I have seen the Chris Mica episodes. episodes, yeah. but I've only seen the Chris Mica episodes. I don't <laughs> like The O.C., um, I, so I really enjoyed – I went to the Paley Center for Media in New York because at the time that was the only place I could see Bridget Loves Bernie. Now, like, I own the DVDs. You can sometimes find clips online and sometimes not depending on, like, I don't know, what determines what's on the internet. But, um, but at the time, I went to the Paley Center for Media. The Paley Center for Media is – is a place where you can do research, but it's basically a TV museum. Mm. And so it turns out that if you show up and you present yourself as somebody actually doing research, the staff gets so overwhelmingly excited that I just sat there watching every single episode of the one season of Bridget Loves Bernie and they would come and interrupt me with stuff that I hadn't thought of because they were so excited to have an actual researcher on site. And so, like Rhoda, like the Mary Tyler Moore show, Rhoda, the Jewish friend rhoda gets her own television show in which she marries somebody catholic mm. this is particularly funny because both the act val Har- neither val harper nor the woman who plays her mother ida rosen morgan's what's Ida's last- i don't remember rhoda's last name both of those actresses are neither of them are jewish um so, anyway, point is, they just bring me stuff. They think yeah. things. They brought... There was a television show called, like, Chicken Soup or something like that. It was terrible. It was about an interfaith marriage. Um, and so that was really fun. And I just sort of spent a month hanging out at the Paley Center for Media. Sweet. Watching TV and knitting a lot. Like, and it was very slow because I was transcribing stuff. Um... So, like, I would be just sitting there watching TV and knitting, and then I would hit, like, a 10-minute scene that I needed, and it would take me two hours to get all of it down. Yeah. Um, you know, I, the, I added the parts on The Way We Were and Annie Hall later. Those aren't in my dissertation at all. Um, there are some things that didn't make it in. Like, I watched maybe, I don't even know how many seasons worth of Mad About You waiting for them to cop to the fact that it was an interfaith marriage. If you, like, Google television interfaith marriage, Mad About You comes up. If you spend three minutes watching Mad About You, you can tell it's an interfaith marriage. They never admit to it.
1: Interesting.
2: The closest they come is they have a fight about oyster stuffing on a Thanksgiving episode.
1: Oh, my gosh.
2: Which Helen Hunt's family has um, oyster stuffing and what's his face her husband's family is it Paul Reiser yes Paul Reiser's family doesn't um and I am like from such a non-oyster stuffing family that it took me a while to even figure out that that was maybe my hint because I was thinking we were talking about oyster mushrooms for the entire thing yeah um and so, like, you can tell that they're an interfaith couple, but, but the show never says anything, and I didn't end up, I wish if I could, I mean, I guess I should have gone back and put this in the book, maybe. I wish I had added something talking about that, but in the end, it just sort of also fell outside of the periodization. I don't talk about 30-something very much either, um, because what I was really trying to do with that chapter, in contrast to the institutional chapter, it's the same time frame. And I was really trying to say, like, all three of these major religious groupings institutionally are like, don't do it. No interfaith marriage. And television was like, and movies were like, this is great. This is how you become a real American. You can, like, get out of your ethnic ghetto and stop being too immigrant-y. And, like, you don't need to issue bacon and you don't need to drape things with, like, icons of saints. Like, You can, you too can be a good secular sort of Protestant American, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that was where I was going. And so in the end, Mad About You is from the 90s and 30-something is from the late 80s. And I had sort of moved on to other topics by those time periods.
1: Something that's like a really modern example that I think a ton of listeners will latch on to is your depictions of sex in the city. And I had some questions about the gender depiction. It turns
2: out that sex in the city is not a contemporary example. Oh, it's not? No, I was recently informed by a student that Sex in the City is Mom TV.
1: Oh goodness. Okay, well, to all the moms out there, um, I have seen the Sex in the City movies, by the way. So speaking of Sex in the City, your depiction of one character's conversion to Judaism shows her like giving it her all as far as like being Jewish. She goes all in after conversion to Judaism. And it shows her like giving it her all, being Jewish after marrying a Jewish man. No, in
2: order to marry the Jewish man.
1: In order to marry the Jewish man, right. No
2: not Jewish.
1: So she's like super serious about it after her conversion and marriage, but he seems to be not serious. So he had her convert so he could marry her, but now she seems to like it. Whereas he wants like little to do with actually doing a Jewish household. So I'm curious about like the gender um, discussion within this question is this fairly common in real life where a wife will convert, works really hard to learn a lot so she can legitimately raise Jewish or Christian children, and then she like outperforms the Jewishness or Christianness of the husband so much that he like gets resentful at her seriousness?
2: So, this is something that I saw a decent amount of. The really a really good place to look for more about this is Jennifer Thompson's book Jewish on Their Own Terms. Mm. Um, So I just want to give a shout out. Really, I talk about this less than I might because she did such a spectacular job that like there just wasn't any need. Um, And she did really amazing deep ethnography with either. I don't remember now whether she talks to women who have converted, but to Christian women who have signed up to raise Jewish kids. So one of the ways that people talk about this is the difference between being Jewish and doing Jewish. Yeah. So a lot of the time particularly like the people who get into interfaith marriages, right? The Jews are often they're cultural Jews, they're secular Jews. They were maybe raised in synagogue and they maybe envision themselves raising kids in synagogues. But they don't So you get these you get these sort of People for whom a cultural Jewish identity is very important. And maybe they were always sort of assuming that they would force their kids to go to Hebrew school and have a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. But they it's not like they're not massively religious people. Um, And then two things end up happening. If they marry somebody who is Christian And in marrying somebody Christian are asking, they're asking her to give up Christianity. And let's be really clear, right? Like I study a lot of people who are in the doing both camp and this is not what's going on. But if you're talking about people who are committing to be Jewish, maybe they're asking her to give up church and a church community. And the thing is that like, maybe she didn't seem wicked, crazy Christian, right? Like, she goes to church on Sunday mornings some of the time, but like, you know, you don't really care. You're having a lazy morning. You're watching Meet the Press. You're doing the laundry. At least that's what my father always did on Sunday mornings. <laughs> laundry, Meet the Press. Um, and, and she's gone for like an hour, right? Synagogue takes three hours. Church takes an hour. You're in, you're out. You drink some coffee, you're done. Or if you're Catholic, you're in, you're out, you don't drink coffee, you're done. This is what Protestants think is weirdest about Catholicism, is how often there isn't a happy hour. (laughs) Um, And, you know, like that's, and so it doesn't seem like a big deal, and then she's giving it up. Um, Or maybe she's just being asked to give up Christmas. She's not even being asked to give up church community, but it turns out that Christmas and its rituals are filling a really important need for her. And so she wants, she agrees to be Jewish, but it turns out that what makes you a good or a bad Jew in the minds and lives of most American Jews is not actually whether or not you go to synagogue. There are lots of other markers of Jewish identity as like an important American minority identity. And like what they are depends a little bit on your generation. It might be going to synagogue it might be really encyclopedic knowledge of Woody Allen, that is less true for people my age who, like, watched him sleep with his oh. own kid, oh. but, like, you know, I mean, I guess she was his stepkid, but, out of due respect for to Andre Previn of Blessed Memory, right, who was her father, <laughs> but... But, like, maybe Woody Allen a little bit less for my generation. But, you know, there are, like, there's Jewish humor. It's engagement with Jewish humor. It's maybe engagement with Jewish foodways. There are lots of things that mark Jewish identity. And, um, but when somebody is sort of giving up Christianity, they're maybe giving up a sense of community, and they're going to want to replace that. They're going to want to go to synagogue. Excuse me, to go to synagogue. The other possibility is, like, you can't really convert to an ethnic identity, right? Like, you can't become nothing—I could take classes at the local Catholic church, and I could, like, become a believer, and I could believe in Jesus, and I could believe in saints, and I could, you know, pray the rosary, and it's not going to turn me into an Italian, right? Right. And the thing is that we understand that because we've got Catholicism over here and we've got Italian over here. That's not how Judaism works. Yeah. right. Someone is going to say, I can't marry you because you're not Jewish. And they mean I can't marry you because you're not Italian. But the only way to get into Jewish is through Catholic. So like the only way that Charlotte can become Jewish is to become religiously Jewish. Yeah. And yes, she can learn to make matzah ball soup. She can learn how to make and braid challah. She can learn all sorts of things. But if she like starts cussing in Yiddish, and she's, I mean, she's living in New York. So that's okay. All of New York cusses in Yiddish. <laughs> the one non-Jew on my dissertation committee is a Christian theologian and a Presbyterian. But because she was born on the Upper West Side, I couldn't get it through my head that she wasn't Jewish. <laughs> and in the end, it never mattered because I never came up with a reference that she didn't already know because she's from the Upper West Side. Right. <laughs> so, like, so, like, maybe in Charlotte's case, she could she could, like, be fetchy in Yiddish. Um, but, like. If you're not, is that an affectation, right? If you didn't grow up using Yiddish, is it an affectation when you start, right? Like, you kind of can't do those things. Um, And, like, you can, as I said, you can learn to make matzo ball soup. You can learn how to make simas. You can learn how to make hummus. You can learn how to do whatever. You're not going to materialize a grandmother's recipe for those
1: things.
2: Right. And so like the only way in is through religion. And so if you're trying to do it, you're doing it through religion. And like one of the tensions that comes up for people is does he have to be Jewish on, does she have to become Jewish on his terms? Yes. Cause it's a patriarchy, but like, or does she get to decide how, like, okay, we will be a Jewish household, but like, if two Presbyterians get married, they both get to decide what it means to be Presbyterian. If two Catholics get married, like, man, Catholicism is big and not particularly ethnically specific. And being Polish Catholic and being Irish Catholic look really, really, really different. Like, you're going to have a negotiation about how it is that you're being Catholic together. Is that different if one person converted?
1: Gotcha. And so the ethnic thing is super interesting as well, because like you really explore this like multi-ethnic, interracial, interreligious dynamic as well in other chapters. And to me, like those parts of the book also offer like a snapshot of the future of the U.S. You know, you show like Latino, Latina, Jewish, African-American and Jewish interfaith white families, among others. So like the demographics in this country are like speeding up. And learning as much about these topics as we possibly can can only benefit. It seems to me, the work that we do together as a po- the population of this country. Like, do you want to maybe tell me about one of the families in the book that you portray in the fourth chapter, and say what you think these portrayals tell us about the future of the country?
2: I mean, the future of the country. I don't know, but I think we're bec- you know we're becoming an increasingly religiously and racially diverse country and I think that you know there's a new book that just came out from beacon press and it's called something like when one religion isn't enough yeah I have it I haven't read it yet I also have it it is I've been told that it's I mean it's not scholarship in the same way it's memoir I believe right but it's supposed to be really quite phenomenal and again I haven't read it but it's supposed to be quite phenomenal and it's you know, what does it mean to have multiple identities? What does it mean, right, if I tell you that I'm half Indian and on the other side from basically a WASP family with some serious Ashkenazi heritage, mm-hmm. so white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, Eastern European Jewish, um... And I myself am Jewish, but my mother is Unitarian and my father is Hindu. Um, and I grew up celebrating Diwali and Rocky, which are Hindu holidays. My mom kept Karvachat, which is a Hindu holiday. We celebrated Hanukkah as sort of an accessory to Christmas. We celebrated Easter as sort of an accessory to Passover And we didn't do these things because we were Messianic Jews. And we didn't do these things because we were deep believers in any of them. But we thought that they had important family stories and important rituals and important metaphoric meanings.
1: Yeah.
2: Sober is an amazing time to talk about liberation. And Easter is an amazing time to talk about rebirth and starting over and spring. And... Diwali is one of the only ways that we intersected with Indian heritage in the family. But I guess the way that I would say it, like sort of from an academic standpoint is like the thing is that people's rituals and practices often have traditional theological reference, right? Christmas is the birth of the savior. Easter is the resurrection. Um, Passover is a very particular story of a very particular chosen people of gods, exodus from slavery. Hanukkah is a story about resisting assimilation. Sure. But it's also a story about killing assimilators. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't tell that part routinely in Chul. Um, although I think it would be interesting to see what would happen if we did. Um, and and Hanukkah is not an important holiday in sort of the Jewish liturgical year for all it can be an immensely important holiday for families with children who are watching their friends celebrate Christmas. Like does so you can say Hanukkah is not an important Jewish holiday. That's not really the lived experience of lots of American Jews. I mean or it doesn't have to be, right? And so like meanings of change And one of the things that a lot of people do, and interfaith families do this, but so do other people, right? So people reinscribe new meanings into their holidays and into their rituals. And interfaith families do that all the time. But, like, that's exactly what all Jews who make a fuss about Hanukkah are doing with Hanukkah. They're not talking about killing assimilationist types. And they are talking about, like, light and darkness. Yeah. Um, That is what every single liberal Christian who does not want to talk in great and excruciating detail about the passion of the Christ is doing with Easter, right? They're talking about rebirth and rejuvenation. And, you know, they're saying things like it doesn't matter whether the resurrection was literal and physical. It is a metaphoric resurrection that is available to all of us. And so, like, interfaith families are changing the meanings. And, but so are so are other people.
1: It's changed a ton since the 1960s, too, with all those uh, things that we talked about earlier with, like, Vatican II and 1966 with the army chaplains. So, what have been the biggest changes from the 60s until today?
2: So, the 1950s were the decade in American in 20th century American religion that had the highest rates of religious observance of any decade in the twentieth century. Mm -hmm. So this is a different and and it's been on a pretty steady decline since the nineteen sixties overall. So I think you've got an increase in categories like the religious nuns Mm -hmm. and O N E S. Um, Although it turns out that there is a really fantastic group of nuns and nuns that like do things together or at least have an internet presence together and apparently a penchant for puns. Nice. But, um, and you know, the religious nuns are a sticky category because it's like sort of everybody who checks nun on a survey box, but you can't tell very much about what they mean by it. And there are people who do There are scholarship that suggests that they fall into a range of categories, um, including people who would love to go to church but can't find ones that fit and people who are sort of religious seekers and believe in, like, the truth of all of the religions and then people who are hardcore scientists who think the entire thing is hogwash and, like, you know, all sorts of things like that. But you get those changes. Um, You know, and again, we're an increasingly ethnically diverse country and so i think you also see increasing combinations there's a, I just read a study that said that in the next generation they think that 20 percent of the jewish population will be people of color in our imagination jews are eastern european jews that's one out of five jews is not like eastern european in origin in the united states and like where are those people coming from Some of them are absolutely people of color who are Jewish and born to people of color Jewish parents. Some of them are people adopted into Ashkenazi Jewish families. Some of them are children of interfaith marriage in which one parent is an Ashkenazi Jew and one parent is not an Ashkenazi Jew. Maybe they are also a Jew of color and maybe they are, you know, African American or latinx or asian like the people in that chapter i've got um maybe they're converts all of those are possible right but that's a really different world and you see that change you know catholicism is increasingly made up of people of color for a wide array of reasons and protestant evangelical protestantism is increasingly brown and black Right. And there are a lot, again, lots of demographic reasons that go into those things. And I'm not a demographer, but it is a changing, changing world.
1: What are some of the directions that you could see the research going in the next several years? Like as far as like groups?
2: Like who will be studied?
1: Yeah, like uh, are, are there any like future studies that you have in mind for yourself? Like I noticed that you mentioned um, LGBTQ couples or believer non believer couples. Like, what do you where do you see yourself taking some of the future research?
2: So I am less interested personally in believer non believer couples because I'm more interested in practice and tradition. Um, although, although I can imagine like thinking about how do people communicate across gaps and worldview could be very interesting. So I am working on an article with a colleague of mine named Brett Crutch who, and it's going to be a comparison of interfaith families and um, kind of gay rights in terms of Jewish institutional responses to the two. And part of what we are going to ask is synagogues have put a lot more effort and have changed their attitude towards gay rights, LGBTQ rights and persons far more than they have towards interfaith families, where in a lot of ways, the institutional synagogue response, there are small tweaks, but it's been pretty stable. Like there's more outreach, but sort of the same message about what they would like and how they understand the problem and that it is a problem. Um, And yet synagogues are much more comfortable spaces, usually for interfaith families than for queer individuals
1: gotcha um Um,
2: we're writing about that cool but my next project is actually called god bless the pill and it's a story of contraception in tri-faith america
1: oh nice
2: so i'm thinking about protestant jewish and catholic um interactions often around um access to the pill increasing it limiting it arguing about it um Thinking about how and why li- religious liberals end up bowing out of that conversation and in favor of like secular religious voices and how that came to be.
1: That sounds awesome. Um, so my last sort of like question for you is a, is a fun one. I have a young child and there's probably a lot That's of so. parents out there listening. Yeah. She was on camera earlier. Um, can you recommend some of your favorite interfaith children's books for me in the audience? Cause I know that you came across quite a few during the research process.
2: Oh man. I don't really like any of them. Okay. So for like a young adult book, I like the Mozart season a lot. Um, the Mozart season is about a girl named Allegra whose father is Jewish, and she's got a not-Jewish-at-all mother. That's how she describes her mother. Her mother is, one assumes, a lapsed Catholic or post-Protestant or something like that. She's from Kansas. Um, And she talks a lot about being half-Jewish and half-not in the book. But you get the sense that she's in this supportive community and she's got like, the book has a strong moral story arc. She's a good person. She's concerned with big questions. Um, And she feels badly for her grandmother who really wants her to be Jewish. And she just doesn't feel like she is a Jewish girl in the way her grandmother wants her to be, but she has sympathy for that point of view on her grandmother's part. So that one is good. There's a book called By Basmati Bat Mitzvah that is fun. That is about a girl whose mother is Indian and has converted to Judaism. And her father is an Ashkenazi Jew. And that one is, that one is fun. Again, it's young adult. Um, There have been a few PJ library books, and when I say I don't like any of them, what I really mean is that they all have really clear agendas. Oh, gotcha. So, you know, there's um, The Queen of the Hanukkah Dosas is about a Jewish family with an Indian, South Indian mom and a South Indian grandma who are and they make dosas for Hanukkah and it's a cute story. And it's just sort of like, here is a diverse way of being Jewish. Right. But it's not like talking about Hinduism in the family. Um, or I suppose potentially Christianity, um, or maybe Islam. I'm just thinking about like what, what groups speak the language that they're using. Um, there is a, there's a book called my two grandmothers, that is really nice for families doing both. Um, it's by um, there are a couple of books called My Two Grandmothers. but this one is about um, Grammy Lane and Bubby Silver and a kid who like spends time with Grammy Lane on her farm in a place that looks an awful lot like Kansas. <laughs> And granny silver in the city and how much she loves both of them and how she wants to share her traditions with both of them, but how she's sad that Grammy lane never gets to have latkes and, and Bubby silver never gets to have like a Christmas tree or whatever. And so it doesn't, it ends up just being food. The Christmas tree never shows up, but she has a special day where each of her grandmothers brings a traditional food and she, and they share food together And complement each other. And it's very nice. Um, If you're talking about a family that is being Jewish, there's a book called Papa Jethro. In which a kid who is Jewish tells his grandfather or talks to her grandfather about being Jewish and teaches him about being Jewish. And he teaches her the story of Moses's kid who Moses had an interfaith marriage. And so Papa Jethro is. Moses's father-in-law so it's a story about a biblical interfaith marriage and how the Jewish kid loves Papa Jethro the midnight grandfather so those it depends on what you're looking for sure in terms of your children's book there I can't think of any about a family that is Christian. I can think of things about people who are doing both and people where there is an acknowledgement that the Jewish child has other relatives. Yeah. Isn't one that acknowledges that a Christian child has Jewish relatives.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, Dr. Samira Mehta, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. Like this is such a cool book. Um I read it on a flight from Buffalo to New York, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to Little Rock, Arkansas, and then from Little Rock, Arkansas, to Chicago, Illinois, and back to Buffalo, New York. So you were like with me on this entire um, trip around the country, and I found myself so just sucked into the stories that you were presenting. It's just such a cool piece of scholarship, and I really do appreciate your time today to talk to me about it. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas is there a place where people can find you if they want to maybe follow some of your work and updates?
2: I have a website. It's just my name. So it's Samirameta.com. On Twitter, I am um, at Samira, S-A-M-I-R-A underscore K underscore M-E-H-T-A. Um, those are probably the best places to find me.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at Outlook.com. or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.